chapter 2, we're going to be starting in verse 42. Uh, We'll look today at the kind of church Jesus' spirit creates. So if you're not a Christian and uh, you came to see what church is about, this is going to be a good intro uh, for you. Uh, Maybe you've had bad experiences with other churches, and let me... Let me just say that that this is a picture of what the church should be. And we are just as grieved when the church acts differently than than what you're about to hear uh, from the book of Acts. If you are a Christian, uh, this this passage will provide a good picture of what to pray for, for this church, and and, uh, work towards as a church. So let's read it together starting in verse 42. says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now to sit before your holy word. It is perfect inspired, authoritative, without error. We need your Holy Spirit, though, to come and help us to receive it and to keep what the Spirit says in it. So I pray that he would come now and that you would fill us with your Spirit. Jesus may look precious in the lives of the people in this church. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So my son Luke has a very creative mind. Builds all kinds of complex things with Legos and blocks, sticks, whatever else. And he loves to tell me about them. And I love to listen. It's just that sometimes I'm surprised at all that one little thing can do. And it's an airplane with rocket power. And then it turns into a boat. And then it can also rescue people on land. Man, that's amazing, son. And you can attach a refrigerator over here. And when the bad guys attack, it goes here. And they eat over there. And you get the idea. Maybe you've had someone who's Use a whole string of ands, and then, and then, and then, that's the way our passage sounds, doesn't it? And they devoted, and all came, and many wonders, and all who believed, and they were selling, and day by day, and breaking bread, and the Lord added, Luke has so much to say, with each and... It's as if Luke is adding another brush stroke 
to a beautiful picture of the church. But more than that, Luke is painting a picture of what Jesus Christ is about when he puts his spirit into the church. Now, this is but one picture. It's the ideal picture. But we must remember that's not all Luke will say in the book of Acts. He will later be very candid about some problems that rose in the church. People lying, people complaining, people being presumptuous, people disagreeing, people debating. So no reason to think that Luke is trying to paper over the the more messy aspects of church life. What he does do, though, is give us a picture of what the church could be when the Spirit moves us, when people like us are filled with the Spirit and embrace the gospel and learn how to enjoy its blessings together. The big idea goes something like this. Christ's Spirit and the Apostles' teaching produce glad dependence on God by the church, generous fellowship within the church, and great impact outside the church. Let's break down that big idea into five parts. First of all, let's not forget that we're dealing with Christ's Spirit indwelling the church. Christ's Spirit indwelling the church. You know, everything to this point in Acts has been the the exalted Christ pouring out His Spirit, and now we're getting the results. The Spirit indwells and creates a new people because without Him, we're only a crooked people. Peter said back in verse 40, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. The crooked generation is opposed to Christ. The way they think suppresses the truth about Christ. Their moral framework is just out of whack with God's law. They value what makes much of self, not what makes much of Christ. In fact, the crooked generation is the one that crucified Christ. But what happens when the Spirit of God comes down and arrests the hearts of people within that crooked generation and brings them out and then makes them a new people? The Spirit creates an alternative community to that crooked generation. We won't read them again today, but we need to keep in mind those Old Testament promises we looked at last week from Isaiah 32 and Ezekiel 36 and Joel chapter 2. All of these that talk about God's Spirit coming and the kind of people He would create. A kind of people that would be united under the lordship of the son of David. The Spirit would establish righteous values and a peace-filled society and a new creation. The Spirit would turn an idolatrous bunch of individuals living for self-glory into a true family of servant-hearted missionaries who live for Christ's glory. And then we see Pentecost come and God the Spirit comes down to indwell a people and they start living together in ways the world cannot make sense of apart from Jesus. So as we go through these things today, please don't forget the Spirit of God creates the people of God. Okay, we can't live this way on our own. 
The Spirit must work these things into us. He, he makes crooked individuals into Christ-like community. We must pray and ask Him to work these things in us. Second part of our big idea, the Apostles' teaching guides the church. The Apostles' teaching guides the church. This is verse 42, right there at the beginning. And they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. Now, the devotion there extends to everything he says in verse 42. Okay, the teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, the prayers, all of it is to be constant in our attention. That's the idea of devotion there. Constant in our attention, these things. We can't be a church that's devoted to sound teaching and ignores life together. Both must be constant in our attention. At the same time, our life together will be superficial and it won't glorify Christ apart from sound teaching. The church doesn't determine its own priorities. The church doesn't operate on intuition or or felt needs or cultural trends. The apostles' teaching is our guide. The Spirit-filled church will be a word-saturated church. The Spirit does not guide us apart from the Word, but through the Word. Okay, If you want to know what the Spirit is saying to the churches, you open this book and read. You'll notice in verse 43 that it says, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's really significant to Luke's storyline. Uh, since the last person that it says performed wonders and signs, was Jesus Christ. Okay, you can look at that over there in chapter 2, verse 22. He was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Okay, the people couldn't deny that God's hand was upon Jesus. Right? Well, now the people cannot deny that God's hand was on the apostles. Or better, that God had raised Jesus from the dead... And Jesus was still working through the apostles. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. You can look at these later on. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. These speak of how God used signs to authenticate his apostles. Okay, it's not the only thing that authenticated the apostles. You know, they also had, uh, also their Christ-like suffering was involved. In their authentication. Also, their Christ-like doctrine was involved. But alongside these things, they also performed Christ-like signs. They were Christ's authorized representatives, and the church was to follow their teaching. In terms of God's story of redemption, this is another key moment. You see, for the Old Covenant community, the law of Moses was their guide. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changed that. Jesus inaugurated a new covenant to follow. That doesn't mean we ignore the law. That doesn't mean the law is now less important or less scripture. Rather, we just can't read the law apart from how the apostles interpret it and apply it to the church under the new covenant. Jesus and the apostles are the guide to understanding all prior revelation because all prior revelation reaches its apex in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus fulfills the law. And He lives in His people to do the same through love. Devotion to the Apostles' teaching is also key because it says that that we are a people of the Word. We're a people that feasts on and follows the Word. It, It was daily. It was something done in formal settings, like when they attended the temple together to to hear the apostles' teaching. It was done in informal settings, like gathering daily in their homes. Later on, Paul will say, you know, I visited you house to house teaching you these things. It was as essential as eating together. Since the apostles' teaching is now bound together in our Bibles, that means we must take time to read it and to study it and memorize it, and make it part of us. It's not just the pastor's job. Pastors must certainly devote themselves to the Word to ensure that the church is hearing Jesus' voice and not their own. But the whole assembly devotes themselves to the Word. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God, And get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. And he says this about John Bunyan. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his, and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress without continually making us feel and say, Why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to us all. Whenever the Word is not something we desire, or or is not something we want to be part of our fellowship, we have to ask each other with all sobriety, why? Why? You see, the Spirit of God compels the people of God to devote themselves to the Word of God. The Apostles' teaching not only gives us gospel truth, but gospel implications. They are both doctrinal and they are practical. And we're doing well as a community when, we, when both are constant in our attention. Third, what happens when these two work together? When the Spirit of God and the Word of God are working together in the people of God. What happens? Well, they produce certain activities within God's new community. One is glad dependence on God by the church. Glad dependence on God by the church. You'll notice in 
in verse 42 that, that they also devoted themselves to the prayers. Okay? Now, we looked at this in chapter 1 a while back, but corporate prayer just saturates the book of Acts. Uh, one, of, one of the main activities of the early church, uh, when and wherever they, they gathered, was, was prayer. And you'll find formal times of prayer, like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they went up to the temple together in order to pray. Uh, or you'll find spontaneous prayers. You know, hey, Peter just got thrown in prison. Let's gather and pray together for his release. But what you see is prayer characterized all of life. Prayer is is when we express our dependence on God. A healthy church is a praying church because a praying church realizes that that it is a needy church. We're nothing without God. We can accomplish nothing for His glory without prayer. But something else characterizing their dependence was was this gladness of heart. In verse 46, it says, They received their food with with glad and generous hearts. Uh, Verse 47, They were praising God. The Spirit produces gladness and praise in the church. See, praying people become praising people because they know the giver gets the glory. They pray, He blesses, we return those prayers and His blessings back to God in praise. Prayer trains our eyes to see God at work. The Apostles' teaching tunes our hearts to rejoice in God's generosity towards us in Christ. Isn't that what Paul says? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. This is Philippians chapter Chapter uh, 4. You see, when you're in the Lord, there's so much to rejoice in. Your worst day is behind you because Jesus took your place in it. Anything that we now suffer is only preparing for us, as 2 Corinthians says, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We get those two things from the apostles' teaching. That's not to say the church never mourns. That's not to minimize the pain we feel because of sin and death in this life. But it does bring it into perspective with all that God has given us in Christ. We must be careful not to become a church full of curmudgeons and puddle glums. There's too much good news and there's too much glory in the Son of God to become that way. Is the gladness we have in Christ contagious? Are we dependent in prayer? If your assessment is no, then again, let's go back to the beginning. Let us pray for the Spirit to come and fill us and make us so. Fourth, the Spirit and the Word also produce generous fellowship within the church. Generous fellowship within the church. So Luke adds in verse 42, 
that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Uh, The word behind fellowship means to share in something with someone. It, It goes beyond the relationship to what is actually holding the relationship together. Okay? And when the New Testament uses this word, it's talking about what we share in Christ through the Spirit. What we share in Christ through the Spirit. In verse 44 he says, And all who believed were together. Together. You got fellowship, and you have, they were together. It was noticeable to the public okay, that these people were always together. It's not that all 3,000 were always present uh, in in one place together. The the stress is on their togetherness in every place. Okay, It was noticeable. People uh, who wouldn't have been together before were now gathered together in Christ. Sometimes brothers and sisters will feel disconnected in in a church. But then you press in a little further. Are you involved with the ministry? No. Do you attend their small groups? No. Do you come to prayer nights or Bible studies or Sunday school? Well, not really. Have people invited you into their house? A few times. Did you go? Once. You know where I'm going with this, right? Well, yeah. Or maybe it's not the individual. Maybe it is the church. Maybe the the church is not very mature in in reaching out to to new people. The church as a whole needs to redouble efforts in inviting new people in and, and those who are on the fringes going and running after them. Whether it's the individual, whether it's the church, one thing we, we need to recognize is that fellowship is a matter of the heart. Our commitments in life reveal our values. Our commitments throughout the week reveal our values. When the Spirit changes the heart, though, we value what Christ values. We value what He tells us to value in His Word and through the Apostles' teaching. And that is His people, His church. He gave everything for them, to serve them, to die for them, to be with them, to unite them to one another, to put His love on display through them. Okay, Why do we have so many one another's throughout Scripture? Just go on your computer program or go online and just type in one another in Scripture and do a search on, on how many one another's you see in the New Testament. Why so many of them? It's because Christ's lordship and his love are displayed through the one another's. Okay? We can't fulfill the one another's of the New Testament alone. They require togetherness. This fellowship that's being talked about here. Let's be clear. Community itself isn't unique to Christianity. Okay, even in a culture like our own where individualism is rampant, people want some kind of community. I see a community board at Starbucks weekly. The world forms communities around sports, our, our favorite college team, art, literature, hunting, movies, service projects. 
various other religious pursuits, you name it. The world is looking for something more. Loneliness isn't satisfying. We were created for more. And so the world grasps for community somewhere. The problem is that any community that doesn't have Christ at the center will eventually fail and prove empty. What distinguishes Christian community is that the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection form the center and foundation. True fellowship is only possible through Christ. Paul says that by nature, you know, we went about life hated by others and hating one another. But Jesus' death forgives us for that old way of life. His resurrection power enables us to forsake that old way of living. And then the Spirit, He comes and indwells us in all changes. Jesus, by the Spirit, now lives in His people and compels us to love one another as He loved us. Even when it costs us everything, we, we live to serve our brothers and sisters as Christ served us. The Spirit not only creates the alternative to individualism. He makes provision for loneliness by giving us God and giving us each other. Two very tangible ways this Christian fellowship expresses itself is in showing hospitality and in meeting needs. You can see the hospitality mentioned there in verse 42, the breaking of the bread... Then again in verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They ate together often in each other's homes. Hospitality was the pattern in the early church. In fact, Paul in Romans 12, 13 makes it a command to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Seek after it. It's something you pursue. Table fellowship is some of the closest fellowship. It's family fellowship. And it puts something on display when people on culturally opposite sides of the map come together at one table and share a meal. I love taking people to this passage to demonstrate the importance of this, but Galatians 2, where where Peter, as a Jew, is eating with Gentiles and in that moment is putting something on display. I mean, you talk about people. We don't have anything in America compared to what Jew and Gentile separation looked like then. But these guys are eating together at the table together. And it's putting on display what God has done in them through Christ. He has rescued them from all of their proclivities to exclude one another and look down upon one another. He's, he has... He has Rescued from them from that, put his spirit in them, and they're eating together in fellowship at the table. What happens when Peter's Jewish buddies show up? up? Those who were pretty proud of their Jewishness. Peter withdraws from the table fellowship. And Paul goes after him like a hornet and rebukes him for separating himself from the Gentiles. He rebukes him, he says, for not walking in step with the gospel over how he acted at a meal. Eating together is a big deal, and it puts something on display. Who we're willing to invite into our homes and serve a meal shows how well we understand the gospel of grace towards us. We need to learn that home isn't a place to escape from others, but a place to extend grace to others. 
I'm indebted to Dustin Willis for pointing that out. Home isn't a place to escape from others, but a place to extend grace to others. Home is a hub for ministry to each other. In one of the most intimate of settings, not a place to avoid each other. For others of us, it's not so much that we're avoiding people. We just want to impress people or others to be impressed with us. And so we have this mindset that turns opportunities for hospitality into entertainment. The house has to look like something out of a Martha Stewart magazine before we have anybody over. I understand that a clean table and bathroom may serve your guests. But let's not paralyze care with unrealistic expectations that our house has to look like nobody even lives there before we invite them over. I'm not a very spontaneous person. I like to plan, but sometimes we just have people over after church. I did this a couple weeks back, invited a family over after church. On the way home, Rachel's kindly reminded me, you know, your laundry's still all over the couch, and uh, breakfast dishes are everywhere, and the table's got syrup on it, you know, these kinds of things. Just roll with it. Just roll with it. A clean home doesn't commend us to God. Christ does. And he's why we're getting together in the first place. That's not what I told her. <laughs> Let's just clarify that. The, the quotation marks ended a couple sentences ago. The point is that hospitality is about opening our life to others and saying, you know, you're welcome here. Romans 15, 7. As God in Christ has welcomed me, so I welcome you. The other tangible way fellowship expresses itself regularly is meeting needs. Meeting needs. We see this in verses 44 to 45. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. So part of fellowship is learning needs and meeting them. Healthy churches not only stay alert to real material needs, they strive to meet them. Now, because this way is, this passage has been taken before, you know, I have to say this that we must not read into this an equal distribution of wealth and property from without, that people were compelled from within to sell their possessions, spirit working in their hearts. It was also voluntary instead of imposed by a totalitarian regime. Still, the way they viewed their own possessions challenges the common materialism and individualism so embedded in the American culture. Those who had many possessions didn't hold them with a a tight fist. They didn't set their hopes on them. They they didn't wait around to see if somebody else was going to do it. Sometimes we think like this. Somebody somebody comes into our church. Maybe they have tons of needs. And we're thinking, oh, maybe they have earthly family members that can help meet those needs. And if they can't meet those, you know, then we'll pay attention. No, Jesus' family trumps earthly family relationships. If they're part of you, their needs become your own needs. 
So they didn't wait around. Rather, they, they held their possessions as belonging also to those in need. That's challenging to how we view our bank accounts and budgets and cars and trinkets. Name any number of things you have. Could you hold them, in a sense, in common with the rest of the people here? Should they have needs arise? Treating them as as what might be useful to, to meet someone else's needs in the church. That's not to say that we create a need by giving to meet a need. Each of us must consider the reality of our circumstances. I think Paul's wisdom in 2 Corinthians 8 is is useful here. That if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. The point is that our abundance at any particular time shouldn't mean higher living while the needs persist, but higher giving that needs are met. The Spirit's work leads us to repent from idolizing the things of this world to loving others with the things of this world. Not that the things of this world are bad. So how are we using them? How are we attached to them? You can tell whether the Spirit is present or absent in a church by the way the people treat their stuff. Christians should be more concerned with people than with their stuff. Our possessions are the resources God uses to serve others in need. And that's what we see here going on with these believers. One thing I've loved about Redeemer Church is that you're a generous people. In my experience, whenever you learn of a need, you work hard to meet it. Somebody has immense, unexpected medical expenses and and all of you chip in and, and help to meet those needs. Somebody needs help with adoption expenses and you, and you give to meet them. Somebody needs rest and, and to get away for a while and you give to send them on a trip. Somebody makes, us, uh, makes an unwise choice and, uh, that puts their family in a, in a hard place and, and rather than condemning them, you have given to assist them. We should rejoice and give thanks for this work of the Spirit in our midst. One area perhaps we can grow is working to actually know the needs. You see, once you know them, you meet them all the time. But sometimes we're not close enough to one another to actually know them. It's the togetherness part again, doesn't it? The the fellowship part. We've got to draw near to know needs, then make plans to meet needs, and then don't forget you're not alone. You don't have to meet these needs on your own. I volunteer you guys all the time. I'm not the only one that can do this, but i got 130 other people that would love to, to bring you into their fellowship and help. The whole church is involved here, not just you. When we live this way together, you see, it puts something on display in a world that's very cutthroat. When we live this way together, the cutthroat world sees an alternative society whose actions shine the spotlight on Christ, who was rich but became poor for our sake, that we, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, when Peter is outlining these things about the church, 
it becomes a window through which we actually see Christ. Redeemer Church should be a window through which the world sees that of our Savior. Lastly, the Spirit and the Word working through the church produce great impact outside the church. Great impact outside the church. Uh, Look at verse 43. It says, And all came upon every soul. Now this isn't necessarily connected to the, the many wonders and signs. He's just listing things out. This awe is also coming from the fact that they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread. It's the community. And, and awe is coming. Whoa, what is going on over here? Something similar in verse 47, having favor with or toward all the people. So this includes not just believers, but the unbelievers there in Jerusalem, having favor with with, or toward all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the Spirit and the Word working inside the church will have missional impact outside the church. Okay, Part of Luke's apologetic is to show that Christianity is a positive influence on society when operating as the Spirit directs. Okay, if others hated them, it wasn't because the church was a brash bunch of folks disgruntled about life. It wasn't because the church complained about everything they felt entitled to, but the world wasn't giving them. It wasn't because the church gave superficial answers to honest questions by skeptics. If others hated them, It was because of the message they believed and preached, the cross of Christ. We'll see that coming coming later on in Acts. But the church itself became a living theater that verified the Spirit's work and the apostles' teaching. Their life together made others ask about this Jesus whom they served and called Lord and, and who had freed them from their sins. The church shared the gospel, and as it says, the Lord added to their number. You see, the local church and its compelling life together is one of the Lord's chief evangelism methods. Jesus said that when his disciples, this is in John 13 and 17, when his disciples loved one another as he loved them, then the world would know that they belonged to him and that the Father had in fact loved us. By sending the Son. The love and fellowship within the community would have impact outside the community. You see, it's that we live in such ways that others can't help but ask about the hope within. And then we proclaim Christ. It's just a question for your evaluation. If we packed up shop... Here, in White Sodom, if we packed up shop and moved to another meeting location, would our current neighbors know any difference? Would your neighbors count it a loss if you moved out of their neighborhood? The question is convicting but important to consider. Yes, it's the Lord who adds to the church, we see here. It's the Lord who calls It's the Lord who saves, but he uses us 
uses the church. Is our community compelling? Can, can we have more impact in White Settlement, in Fort Worth, in the own, our own places where we, where we live? I think by the Lord's grace, we can. You see, the same Holy Spirit that is moving these believers here hasn't changed. The same Christ is still on the throne today, as was then. He can fill us with the Holy Spirit and make us a compelling community. He can make us competent ministers of grace. He can make us engage the broader public in ways that impact the city for Christ. I think one recent example is is the church buying Ben and Tara a van. I mean, they entered the adoption process without, without the means to get one, and you got them one. And I don't know how many opportunities they've shared with me or with you at members' meetings of non-Christians. Your church bought you a van? Enter Jesus and you got the gospel. Like, it's just laid in your lap. Here's a softball. They're stunned by this. It has, your love within has had impact outside. That's how it works. Or it's like the, the Wedgwood Care Group meeting the other day. Gary has a, a Buddhist neighbor. This guy's house gets burglarized. And so he stops by Gary's house to get help. It's care group night. They're fixing to meet. What does Gary do? Tuck his Bible under his... Sorry, he got care group. Walk inside. No. He pulls an audible cancels the regular care group meeting, and then gets all the brothers from the care group to come help clean this guy's house up a bit, and they pray for him at the end. And what's going on while they're cleaning up? This guy gets to witness the Spirit of Christ at work in the community. And it only confirms the message of the gospel that Gary has been sharing to him for months. That's how it works. That's the spirit at work in this church body already. Those are just a couple of examples. There are others. So be encouraged in it and then ask the Lord to increase the impact wherever we live, work, and play together. Christ's spirit and the apostles' teaching produce glad dependence on God by the church, generous fellowship within the church, and great impact outside the church. Let's pray for the Spirit to do more through us. Let's devote ourselves to the Apostles' teaching that it may guide us in our priorities and pursuits as a church. That's the only way we're going to change, is if the Spirit's moving us and we're devoting ourselves here, we will start to see what God's kingdom is about and how we need to live to, as you confessed earlier, prefigure that coming kingdom that will be. What we want is the kind of community that is actually giving people a little taste of the glory that is to come. A little window into the kingdom, God's kingdom on earth. And they see that when the church is functioning as we have seen here today. The Lord has begun a good work. May he bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. We're going to do a little something different today. Gary's going to come uh, lead us in song. And we are going to sing a couple songs as our prayer uh, to the Lord, starting with Jesus, with thy church abide.